G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode is kind of a special one to me. I, I brought along an old friend of mine who I've known for many, many years, uh, isn't actually an OT, uh, which is, I think, probably a first for the, the podcast. Uh, but we delve deep into the world of language, particularly in mental health, because that's both of our practice areas, uh, but the impact that it can have on the people that we work with. So a bit of a trend coming for the last couple of episodes, but it's something that's really important, and I really want you guys to get your thinking caps on around it. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the lovely Zara Mills. You're my first nurse on here. Hey. How the hell did that happen? A nurse on an OT podcast. See? It's all about collaborative. Normally I start with how did you find OT, but um, yeah, that probably won't work this time. No, it won't. Alas, it's how did OT find you, and it's about how did you find me? That might work, because we've known each other for a very long time. It has been. Well, it's been 12 years now, at least. When was that? That was 2008. Nah, 2009 I started there, and you started just after me. I started in the rehab team in, it would be the July. Of 2009? Yeah. So only six, yeah, but that would be all right, about six months after I started there. Mm. That's right, because it was me. Because I went to Queensland Health in October 2007. No, 2008, sorry. In On the Gold Coast? Yeah. And then just moved into the rehab. Oh, you were on the ward. That's mm. right. And then into the wonderful rehab where you met me and your life's never been comfortable since. <laughs> and your life has never been the same since. It hasn't, has it? And then where <laughs> did you go after that? Did you go straight to Sydney? Yeah, so I went from the inpatient units, acute adult inpatient unit on the Gold Coast to the rehab team where we met. And then we were there for nearly Uh, 18 months, two years. I think I was there 18 months. I think it it closed. I left in about October 2010. Yeah. yeah, it could have been. And then there were some changes, I think, towards the end of the year, beginning of the year. Yeah. And then I went to work in the community there, although that was for a short period of time. <clears throat> and then in July, I went to Sydney. Of 2011? Yes. The year after. Yeah, gotcha. And then you were still in mental health there. It could have been even 2010. Mm, you leave because what year did you leave? Did you say October two thousand ten? Oh yeah, it would be two thousand eleven. Yeah, yeah. And you were still in mental health when you went to Sydney. Still in mental health, so I went to mental health. So I did um, what they used to call care coordination. I don't particularly yep. like that term. Um, we'll get into that. Surprised by yeah. <laughs> um, so I worked in a community mental health team for nearly a year. And then I went to go work back in inpatient services in acute adult mental health for, geez, 
couple of years. Um, and where did we go to from there? You went to research? No, I did that. And then... So I did... Too many jobs. That. Don't even know where you've been. Oh, it gets all murky. Um, and then I think I did... Um, I worked in ED um, as a mental health nurse. So that was an interesting job because you they rather than being part of a mental health team you're part of the emergency department team so your role was very much working with the ed nurses rather than working with the consult liaison mental health team yeah so it's quite interesting and in that all of your work was done so they would see so anybody even with mental health who needs an assessment they would say Sarah, we've got somebody that you need to see <clears throat> but the doctors in the ED and the regs would all be who you do your work and your triaging with. So if you saw somebody and you're thinking it's likely they're going to need to go to hospital, it was only then, and after discussion with the ED doctors, that you would then say they're probably going to need to be seen by the mental health team, like yep. the consult liaison team. And then they would, and more often than not, then they would be admitted into hospital. So... It was quite an interesting model of care, and it still continues yep. to this day in um, the RPA. So I did that for a while, and then I went back to inpatient services again, and then I went overseas to work in Fiji for 12 months. That's again. right. Yeah. That's right. What were you doing there? Just so there I worked as nurse. a um, – no, community mental health nurse. Oh. Mm. Culture shock? It was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't. So I'm very fortunate in that um, my brother-in-law's for jeans. So in some respects that did help. Um, so the work was quite different because obviously you're working with a, you know, a very different culture. Also we included those different things. So they had very different beliefs in terms of religious beliefs. Um, in terms of mental health nursing, they also had quite a different way of working as well. So um, to what I was used to, at least. So in a lot of ways, it was a really good work experience because it made you appreciate what we have back here in Australia and the UK and other parts. Um, I've lost my train of thought. So working with them was interesting because it was quite refreshing it was quite a back to basics in a positive way though so it was <clears throat> it really made you think about some of the things what you'd be doing um some of the treatments they had were the same that we have in Australia but they were quite different um in how they were used so that was quite interesting as well because they would use maybe some medication and you'd sort of see some side effects because the doses were quite high and maybe higher than what they needed to be as a semi-outsider, because I didn't know everybody's care that well. So you'd sort of sometimes wonder well, whether there's an alternative. So in one year, I'd say there's only a small part of work that you can do into what's a whole, really a whole mental health service. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're very lucky because there was a, several community mental health nurses there. So there was one other that was in Lambasa. So... She worked very closely with the one community mental health nurse there for the whole island population. Um, and then there was another nurse that was based in Nandi, near one of the other main, um, near where the airport is in 
Fiji. So no, Latoka, sorry, wrong. So all three of us quite consciously worked closely together. So that the idea was, and it was something that we did consciously together with um, another mental health nurse who was working with the chief mental health advisor. So he, um, all four of us together, intentionally made sure we were saying the same thing and sort of singing the same message. So we didn't, so we worked purposely from the same hymn sheet, if you like, because we didn't want to be saying, so I would say, you know, you only give an injection to somebody if they've had X, Y, and Z, where somebody else in another division would be saying, no, you need to give injection now because that's all we've got. But like, we made sure we had something of a continuous and um, with what we did there. So that was quite a conscious effort. So it was a really great work experience. It was um, quite refreshing and it was something different. So I enjoyed the work there. Yeah, that it very. I remember when you went over there. I'm like, that's that's gonna be different, all right. <laughs> and then back to the Sydney. Thing, yeah, the thing is in Fiji is though the people that I worked with were truly wonderful. They appreciated the time and effort that you gave with them. And again, they worked in some conditions that we're quite fortunate to not be exposed to. So it really, I think, again, made you appreciate what we've got here and to not take for granted the opportunities, the services and um, what we do have. And the room making some waves there as well. So they had like a survivors group as well for people in mental health. So you could see they were really paving the way. And in some ways they were perhaps even more advanced than we are because they had a, a quite a big emphasis there on primary health care. So the structure of the services where the, they almost use the community mental health nurses as being, I guess, at the top of the triage, if you like. So you'd only refer to the community mental health nurses if they you know, they needed to access um, specific, like specialist services, I suppose you'd say, because the primary health care, it would be village nurses and community med- community nurses that would be looking after people on a day-to-day basis. I wonder if it's more because their whole health system would have been very much sort of I guess, constructed using the WHO guidelines, whereas a lot of other developed health countries are kind of, they have this history before all that started that they're still trying to partly hang on to and then partly transition and end up with this model mess that we have, depending on your country and your your perspective, but this sort of muddled health service somewhere in Mm. in between. Yeah, where you either have, you can go and see your GP... If you, um, if everything's okay and you've got all the supports in place, or then the alternative is that is you have the community mental health team, and for that you have to meet so much criteria. So generally, there's quite a gap in between that many people don't fit into. Yeah. So, in some ways, it was really refreshing and quite. It really made you think about how the services are working in more Western countries and how their emphasis is massively on public health and primary health and how quite often our services don't really fit in with that so in a lot of ways they were quite advanced and they were open to learning about mental health which was quite massive as well that's novel yeah (laughs) and i open and they wanted to even though it often clashed with some of their cultural and religious beliefs they were open to learning about it they weren't dismissive more often than not which was nice to see that's awesome 
And I, mm. I, I have a feeling because we are going to get into a topic that I think gets under both of our bonnets, uh, which is language use. Uh, or probably more the unhelpful use of language. And I mm. suspect you've probably got some insights from Fiji with regards to that as well. Just being a completely different health system and being, uh, I guess, almost starting from scratch with a decent standard in mind as opposed to trying to continuously upgrade and modify like we seem to be in Western Western health. Yeah, so... They had um, postgraduate education in mental health there, which was really great. And the nurses were quite often motivated to attend to it and to do it, which was really great. And often, I think the doctors did the same, I want to say. And sometimes they may go higher. I'm not sure you might just cut that bit out. Um, So they were interested in knowing about mental health, although you did notice that they more often than what not, they wouldn't use what I suppose you'd call mental health jargon that we often see being used. So, for example, if you're describing somebody's mental health, they wouldn't come out with different words like they're tangential or the delusional or the thought disordered or all these different words, which are really biomedical model sort of language, you know. It's, you wouldn't often hear them coming out with such language as that and they'd sort of describe a person as being he's not very happy at the moment so they're quite more I suppose you'd say lateral in their thinking as to how they described people and this is remembering that they did a lot of the people in the community mental health teams did undergo postgraduate education in mental health there so they've got a university there where it's quite heavily emphasized mental health so it wasn't they didn't not use that language because, because they, they didn't, didn't know. know. Yeah, they, they they were quite familiar with it and what the terms of reference were used. It's it's for you know whichever reason they wouldn't use it. And if they were doing a handover amongst teams in like a formal setting with doctors and other professionals, you'd maybe hear doctors would use that language. From the time that I was there, it wasn't often that you'd hear fellow mental health nurses using that language. So let's get it out on the table. What is <laughs> what is your soapbox? What is your pet peeve with language? <laughs> then we'll unpack it. I think it. it's probably... So I think the thing is with language and some of the words and terminology that we use is there's sort of a few different angles and I guess you'd say complexities to it. So I think there's to sort of... I guess you can't really box it up. If... Um, you're going to it's probably looking at the language that we use when we're say doing handover or in conversation with colleagues the language that we use written um or when you're writing up your documentation at the end of a shift for example I think there's sort of different angles to each of it so I think in terms of language that we use when we're written in particular so as I think presumably most places at the end of a shift when you've been working, where it's in the community of inpatient, then you have to document your interactions for that day. Interaction, yeah. So I find it interesting that there's some things that are done regardless of the profession. Okay, like what? So, for example, if somebody has been shouting a lot one day, okay, then they'll put something like verbally aggressive plus plus plus. 
I never understood the pluses because I'm like, exactly well, what's that. the difference between one plus and two plus? Because no one ever writes one plus or two plus. It's always three. No. It's always three or four. Four. Wow, that's extreme. But if you're four, then I think then you're verging or becoming agitated. Then you get agitated as a word. I think if you're irritable, <laughs> you might get two pluses, <laughs> which would mean if you're grumpy, you may have got no pluses, but if you're irritable, you might get one plus. <laughs> There's a, a scale of pissed offness. <laughs> yeah, basically. And these are people who are often in hospital. They don't want to be in hospital. I'd be Some people too. may think they don't want to be in hospital. You know, it, it, it's, and I think that's how sometimes the language we use, it's, sometimes I wonder if we lose the meaning of it. Okay. Because we'll say somebody's very agitated that are in hospital. And I'll be like, well, is that person agitated or is he just really upset? He's in hospital and he doesn't want to be. So I think, um, I think we've sort of broached on two subjects here. That's all right. I think that the pluses, yep. that's something that I've seen. I think I've seen physicians write it. I've seen OTs write it. I've seen nurses write it. I think that's something across the profession. And still to this day, I don't understand what it means. And then on the flip side of that is, if you have pluses to emphasize a point, well, why don't we have minuses to de-emphasize a point? Irritable, minus, minus, minus. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, if you were, then I presume you'd be sleeping. (laughs) Too many minuses and you're unconscious. Yeah. (laughs) So it's things like that. And then... So there's some parts of language that I just don't understand and I'm not sure I ever will understand. And then I guess the other angle to sometimes the written language is so we talked about writing things subjectively and objectively. Yep. So often I wonder is are we mindful about what we write in terms of what our own, I guess, position is and our own social norms and beliefs and perceptions are. So Probably an example of that is you'd have somebody who is in the clinical notes, and it may not be unusual to say they're appropriate in their behaviour. Yep. So if we have a look at that, that, I would say, well, what like what are we measuring that against? Yeah, by what standard? Does does that mean they're sat on the floor cross-legged watching TV? Yeah. Or does that mean that they're or is it they, lying they're upside down in their bed? It, it, it's... How do you describe the word appropriate? Yeah. So I think I've often been of the belief and probably opinion that I think using the word appropriate is very objective to ourselves. And then I think when we use that often in our notes, we're essentially putting on our own social stance, I guess, onto somebody else's belief. So we're essentially saying somebody's behavior is appropriate or not, depending on what our own social norms are. And I, I think that's fairly, like that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's fairly, would be fairly normal because I think as humans, like how we learn is we compare what we're learning against what we already know and that kind of stuff. So we, we need, our only way to differentiate things is to compare them to either something we know or something that it's standing next to or like that's how we, like our brains are wired for pattern recognition and that kind of stuff. But I think the issue is what we're actually comparing it to. And I have an issue mm. with the whole, um, I, like whenever I used to write notes when I worked 
clinically. I used to try and avoid that anyway. My I was a big advocate for the the I guess what you'd call the simple language movement and just Ooh. and rather than try and use these fancy words that again, like you said, compared the person's behavior to some kind of social norm, just describe mm. the person's behavior instead. Mm. Like they were doing this, not mm. I feel it's appropriate or, you know, it's appropriate mm. to their baseline. It's appropriate. To, but that was the other thing is a lot of that time, a lot of the times when people were using that language, there was no context around it. So it was appropriate. Yeah. Okay. To what? To a social norm, to their mm. baseline, to what? Like that. Yeah. Even those two things could be very different. Mm. Um, I know a lot of really eccentric people. I'm talking to them, one of them right now. <laughs> uh, your baseline, like back in the day where you used to wear, you know, lots of sequins and bright coloured clothes and tutus <laughs> and all sorts of stuff, your baseline was very different to my baseline with regards mm. to that. So something that was appropriate, in air quotes, mm. uh, to you might have... Mm. If I if anyone saw me wearing something to that effect, mm. they'd be like, "He's off his rocker. He mm. needs to be in hospital right now because there's something seriously mm. wrong with him." Mm. So you're right, and I do feel like the issue with using a lot of that language, and that's that's not something that was ever taught. Like I did no it documentation wasn't. training uh, out the wazoo yeah. throughout my career, and it was mm. never like the context side of it was never even discussed yeah so it was always like here's i used to get i remember i don't know if you remember but i used to get a list of words that you could use in like an yeah. msc mm-hmm. uh and some definitions so that you knew what they meant and i'm like why yeah. are we using these words if we can just write mm-hmm. you know the switch was bouncing around topics or whatever yeah like why do i have to describe it some other weird way Oh, I completely agree. I mean, so we frequently, still working in an inpatient unit now, we frequently have nursing students. And I think the important thing to emphasise is I'm not saying that we don't need to understand the meaning of the medical jargon that we see. So the those terminologies, I would never say that we don't need to um, understand them because I think that's imperative because I think the one thing is about the jargon is is that it's understood generally globally so if I was going to say somebody's having persecutory delusions they're going to understand that in Australia they're going to understand yeah. that in Fiji and they're going to understand that in Iceland whereas I think if you were going to say things are more of a layman terms it could have a different interpretation in different countries yeah, yeah. so I wouldn't say that we don't need to understand the language but terms like that it, you wouldn't just write persecutory delusion it would be persecutory oh, delusions about or in regards to or incorporating oh, completely. this this and this like you add the, that's the issue that's the difference the with that particular thing is you're adding the context to it yeah yeah so i think sometimes that was one point that i did want to emphasize it's including the context around the what's being said and I sometimes think that's being missed. And I don't know. And again, I think this is something that's more than just nursing because I've seen other um, clinicians do it as well. Doctors and OTs and social workers and psychologists will often do it as well. I think going back to things such as the word appropriate, though, for example, it's 
sometimes if you'd say something, so one that I see sometimes is somebody will say inappropriately dressed. So, you know, when you take into context, people are in hospital. If somebody was outside wearing a vest top and it was raining, I don't think it would be uncommon that somebody would say they're inappropriately dressed. And I'd be thinking, well, I probably wouldn't do that because I'll probably be cold. If they're content to do that, then I don't think that's an issue. It's, I think sometimes if you had somebody of a different culture or religion, for example, Hindu who's usually very traditionally dressed in a sari, for example, I think it would be more about describing, it's not inappropriately dressed. They're not dressed in what would be the usual cultural norms or what they would wear um, outside of being in hospital. Yeah. Because if they were inside of outside of hospital, when they're feeling better, they wouldn't be wearing a vest top, for example. Yeah. You know, so it's, I think then it's looking at what the cultural norms are for that person as opposed to ourselves. Which I think and I think is, that's the real difference hard. about the objective sometimes. and the subjective yeah. part of it as well. And I think that's hard sometimes because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as well as I do, there are a lot of clients that you get to know really well on an inpatient Ooh. unit because you do have some people that come in, you know, regularly, whether it's yearly or sometimes they, they'll come in every few weeks for a period of time uh, when they're trying to find that balance of how to stay well in the community. There's times when you don't... I, I feel in the documentation I've read, there's times when people don't know the client well enough to make that kind of judgment, but will still yeah. say, oh, they're inappropriately dressed. Yeah. And to me, a lot of the time, that really rigid structure with the documentation around what are they wearing, what are they doing, blah, 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 I feel like there's sometimes issues that are missed. Like mm. in that example, rather than commenting on the fact that they're wearing a vest top, why are they standing in the rain? Mm. Like, is that a normal behavior? Or is, you know, are they mm. talking to rain gods or whatever they're doing? Mm. To me, I feel like the documentation formats that people are often taught are mm. so structured and rigid to the point where mm. like we were talking about before to the point where they give you a list of yeah. words to use mm. that often the the nuance of the situation that you're actually trying to document can be lost yeah yeah it's um and as i said before i think that's very much true and still even now it's true like with nursing students so we're obviously quite consciously sort of ask them is some of the best ways I think in my humble opinion is doing your documentation is writing. What can you see? So really nutting out the subjective and the objective is I think some of the, some of the best ways that you can really frame a picture. Because if we think, if we take a step back from it and think about the purpose of doing clinical notes, it's so that people get a snapshot picture of what's happened yeah. during those eight hours that you've been working with that person. I think looking at what that person said, like using quotes, for example, um, and sometimes if somebody's, as, as we were talking about persecutory delusions before, often using quotes, for example, it's, it's similar to, I guess, in research, you're using a, basically a reference to back up your statement. Yeah. So I think sometimes those are things that we tend to lose. And I think we, we lose the idea that using documents is, like clinical documentation is like a narrative. Yeah. 
And I think we then become quite focused on sometimes using words either quite, I think quite offhand, which to me I think is quite concerning. Like you're using them just as throwaway comments. To sound And smart. I think this is eight hours that you've had, that you've, you know, had the privilege of working with this person. Yeah. You know, if, if they slept for most of the shift, then they slept for most of the shift. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, I think that's then a whole other thing in itself, I suppose. <laughs> depending on. But I think it's really about. Depending if you're on a day shift or a night shift. <laughs> yeah. Slept, <laughs> slept. I think it's really about thinking critically about how we pick the language that we're using to describe this person for eight, years, eight hours, you know, and, and we're lucky enough to have them work with us, you know, for those eight hours. So it almost feels a bit like you're doing something of an injustice to them by saying you haven't done this or, you know, like being, how would you say? Like you're not, I guess, using your best integrity to describe the person by coming yeah. up with a load of jargon, which doesn't, it doesn't really frame that picture that you've had them for in that time, I suppose. I think the other thing with regards to that that I remember quite clearly is a lot of the notes that I read, um, again, like you said, you, you, you're trying to present a snapshot of how that person was at mm. that point when you were interacting with them or while they, while you were on shift, et cetera, so mm. that someone else can read that and get, get a good image of pretty much as accurately as possible what happened, what mm. they were like. And I find I used to find that a lot of the notes that I would read were very much written from that perspective of I'm the nurse and here's the interactions that they had with me yeah. as opposed to describing what they were doing, what they mm. did during the shift. Even if they weren't, like it was just an observation that you made when you weren't actually talking to them. Like, you know, I saw them, you know, playing pool or watching TV or reading a book or mm. talking to other clients, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, the notes that I've read have quite often been, yeah, more around, oh, they were aggressive towards me. They said this to me. Yeah. It was more from the nurse's perspective when I feel like it was the better notes and mm. the more valuable notes, in my opinion, are like, I don't care what happened to the nurse. In reality, mm. I'm not, that's a broad statement. I do care about the nurses. But I, when yeah. I'm looking for information about the client, I don't care what happened to the nurse. Unless it was also, like you a, don't really care if they had eggs on toast for breakfast, neither. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I think in some ways, maybe what we've done as, I think, again, I think it's more than just nursing, as I, I wonder if we've lost the purpose to writing clinical notes. And I wonder if part of that is because we've been concerned, and I think this is a global thing, we've been concerned with the red tape that's associated with notes. Yep. You know, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I think part of it is that component, and I think the other, I guess, more worrying part is we've lost the idea that we've lost a sense of meaning of the narrative. Yep. So whilst I think it's important to write down if somebody's had breakfast or not, if they had baked beans, or if they had scrambled eggs, it's probably not going to, you know, unless there's dietary requirements, it's yeah. probably not going to be, you know, much breaker. of a muchness. Yeah. You know, I think the other component to it is, is like you were 
making reference to what you said just before is sometimes reading notes, if you sometimes read them a bit closer, you can often see that then becomes a bit of a power imbalance between the clinician and the person as well. Um, and I think that's quite concerning. Yeah. Because I think if anything, we don't want to emphasize that I can sit in the nurse's station and you can't. Yeah. You know, that really the idea is about working together. Every day I go to work, I can't think how lucky I am that I get to a person or several people, whether they want to or not, share their story with you for that period of eight hours. I can't think of any other profession or, you know, healthcare where people have that opportunity. Yeah. And to do that justice um, in writing up some of those interactions that you have, then I think it's one of the other angles is, is when we do think about what we're writing is whether we'd be more than happy for other people or the person to read what we've documented about them. Now, when I say this, I'll probably take it into context. If there's those ethical, legal, confidentiality issues, the more curly, you know, really gnarly sort of topics with this, um, like a particular issue that's going on, maybe to do with child welfare or, you know, the really, I guess, the more ethical, real nitty gritty topics. Yep. Yep. As much as we can, putting those aside for the moment, in writing your general documentation, if you're, I kind of write it, the idea that I'd be more than happy for the person to read what I've wrote about them every day of the week yep and I think that's about being comfortable in what you write being able to comfortably justify what you've written and why you've written it and really writing it with the thought of this this note isn't meant to be a criticism this isn't meant to be a well this is what you've done wrong today yeah this is you know it's I guess like I said it's like a real narrative of the interactions you've had with that person and what a privilege it is and you know that would probably be, I think, one of the... That's often what I say to student nurses is consider what you would write as if the person could read it themselves. Yep. That's and remembering fine. that we aren't equal. Like, there's no... There's no us and them. There's no us and them because you've gone to university and the other person may have done, they may not have done. Because they're linked in with mental services, they are in no way inferior to any one of us. Whether you're a staff specialist, whether you're a nurse whether you're an assistant in nursing, it matters regardless, is every single person is equal. I've, I've worked with people that are miles more qualified than I'll ever be. Mm. Like, yeah, I don't, there's there's no, but I, I think you should, like you said, like aim to treat everyone like the same. Like it's mm. not like I've treated those people <clears throat> any different than I treat anyone else that I worked with. Like everyone's... Mm. It's one of those things, and I, it's good to hear like your your message about that is pretty much exactly the same as what I tell our students as well. I'm like, I've I, I don't write things in documentation that I wouldn't happily show them. Mm. I'm like, here, have a look. This is what I wrote, mm-hmm. and I've done that before. I did that in the in the rehab team quite a few times that we worked in together. Um, mm. You know, if I did an assessment with someone, I'm like, here's here's what I wrote. Are you happy with it? This is going to go to the doctors, and maybe some of the nurses will read it as well. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't like that bit. Okay. Well, this is what I saw. Like, do you want to yeah. give me more information? What What do yeah. you feel like was going on at that point in time? Okay. Cool. Mm. 
there's some more information. There's a, mm. another opportunity to to get to know and to get more out of that person that you're working with. Mm. Like it's, yeah. I, I, I think I think a lot of the time those notes are written under the assumption that no one's ever going to see them again. They're going to go into mm. a, a cupboard somewhere or a storage shed somewhere for 12 years or whatever it is and then they're going to be incinerated and no one will ever look at them. And I, mm. I've read notes that I'm like, that is obviously the the frame of mind that that individual has when they are writing notes i'm like because like i'm offended by reading it and I, it's not mm. even about me <laughs> mm. you know i remember um working with a lady and i think somebody must have said to her um on a previous shift um so this lady i think i think she had some medical issues as well I think, and they were newly diagnosed, I think. Anyway, she was in hospital, and I think somebody said to her beforehand that um, she she was quite upset by some of the language that I, I think it was a nurse who said to her beforehand. She's like, so she approached me and she said, well, this person said to me that they think I'm very thought-disordered, I'm very grandiose, and I'm very delusional. I said, oh. She said, I don't agree with any of that. I said, well, I think it's reasonable that you don't agree with that. Like, you don't have to agree with it. Yeah. And I sort of said that, well, I wonder if the person was actually trying to say that you're talking quite fast at the moment. She said, well, yeah, I am. Um, and the, some of the thoughts you've got at the moment may be different to say what you're having before you started your treatment. She's like, well, of course they are. You know, it's been very distressing, upsetting and those things. Um, but she was really quite focused on some of the jargon. I think one of the other nursing staff had used on her. Yeah. And I think even to the extent, I think she's actually, it sounded like she was offended by it. Not to discredit, which, you know, is quite reasonable. I think to me that it really emphasised how um, powerful the language was, had been used and how powerful it was to her and the effect that it had on her and that it, at least it didn't sound positive for her, you know. And I've had similar, especially with those those terms that pretty much only get used in documentation, like tangential mm-hmm. and that kind of thing where clients, again, probably don't understand the context in which that term has been written, but they've read it or found out about it somehow or the nurse has told them. And like I remember a client when I was working on an inpatient ward who came up and was like, oh, such and such wrote that I was tangential. They think I'm making it up. I'm like, well, that's not what that means. But I can understand how distressing that that is, thinking that, you know, your nurse is writing things in your chart that you know that the rest of the health team is going to read mm. and you feel like what they've written is that you're making whatever it is that you were talking about up. Like that would be mm. incredibly distressing because mm. in that situation, again, they felt like they have no power. Mm. So, you know, someone else is making things up and telling the rest of the team about me and there's nothing I can do about it. Mm. So, yeah. And I think the thing is, Often, so we're talking before about our studies. So when I was doing the studies for any of the assessments, I decided to have a look at um, the power of language. So this is partly where this interest came from. So I was having a look, and part of the assessment I decided to do was I was having a look at the different terminology that's used in referring to people that access mental health services across the world. So. Purposely, I picked countries that were westernised. So I think I looked at Canada, USA, the UK and Australia, I think were the four countries I looked at. 
So I was looking at the different terminology that's used. So <clears throat> I think service user is a phrase that's used in the UK quite often. And I think in Australia, I think we sort of flip between client and consumer, I think. Yeah, I think it depends on the state. Yeah, I think so. It's I think it depends on the profession as well, I think. Okay. So I think in nursing, there's been quite a heavy emphasis on consumer. But then I think some professions like social workers, for example, and I think OTs tend to sometimes use client as well. Sometimes. I know in the places I worked, it was always consumer. Mm. And then I think in America, I think they use the word consumer as well. So part of the assessment was looking at, or in some places even use the word patient still. Yeah. And that angle comes from, well, we're accessing a health service, so we're a patient. And this were people themselves saying, this is the word that we prefer to be used yep. to make reference to ourselves. So I remember part of the assessment, what I chose to do was, so each country had, um, I guess you'd say, like a recovery government document that they would have. Yep. And then they would also have, I guess, like a government document looking at the national mental health plan, for yeah. one of a better word. Each country had their own version or one or the other. So I remember looking at what language was used in each document. And so the national government mental health plan document would use consumer through most of it. And yet there were still parts where they would use patient quite often. Okay. And then the same was in, I think, each of the other documents. So they would sort of maintain that they're consumer-orientated, but they'd still interchangeably Switch. use the yeah. word patient, whereas a recovery document wouldn't use it yep. whatsoever. So it was really interesting looking at how um, the language that's used referring to people would sort of vary depending on the documents. And I often wonder if there wasn't quite as much stigma around mental health still, whether we would be comfortable in using the word patient. Yeah, I don't know. I think... I think it's probably a conversation that needs to be opened up, broadened a lot yeah, more to people yeah, accessing yeah. mental health services to ask them and sort of pose that to family and carers and to say, if mental health was a lot more... And this is globally now. I don't think it's just in Australia. Yeah, yeah. If it was a lot more accessible and recognised and somewhat okay to be a part of mental health services and to access them and stuff would there be quite as much concern about using the word patient or not or whether they'd still say actually discredits my experience so it's a full stop no anyway it's interesting because i think one of the things that a lot of those recovery or there's you know eight million different recovery models and recovery type um frameworks and that sort of stuff around the world and one of the things that they all push, including a lot of our OT models, and I'm sure it's the same in nursing, is that you spoke about it earlier about that power differential and like the fact mm. that we're equal and that kind of stuff. And I always wondered how any of those terms fit into that because all of mm. those terms um, have some connotation of a person either utilizing or chasing a service from another person, which mm. automatically the connotation of that word has, you know, an us and them. In fact, you could be, mm. you know, I'm a consumer of the hardware store. Like I am going to purchase a, you know, tool from the Bunnings. Like mm. that's, there's a power differential there, whether I like yeah. it or not. But the the way that's framed just automatically mm. with any of those words, and they're all the same with regards to that. So like I've been recently 
um, I've had a few people like, oh, you know, what do you call, like with regards to this exact same mm. question, what do you call the client slash consumer slash patient? I'm like, I call them their name. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm like, is it Steve? Sweet, I'll call him Steve. Mm. Like there's no reason for me to make up another label that automatically, whether it's listed in that recovery document or framework mm. or not, mm. In my perspective, with my knowledge around like social construction and that kind of stuff, mm. automatically goes against the whole like keep things equal, can like you know try and mitigate the power differential, that kind of thing. Yes, I've, there's going to be an automatic power differential there already because yes. I'm a therapist. I need to try and minimize that as much as possible. And yeah, you know, calling someone something other than their name, yes, kind of works against that straight off the bat. Mm. And I'll probably ask you, so going back to, I think we've discussed this before, is looking at, so when pe- when you're writing people's notes and previously, yes, how often would you see people referring to, or colleagues that you've worked with, refer to people by their name in their notes as opposed to no, the clients use? It's just CT. Patient and, yeah. CT, probably because... Or PT. It's short, or, pa- or PT, abbreviated depending the patient. on the ward, yeah. yeah. So, and I think that's probably one of the other things is probably equally as confusing to myself as the pluses yeah. is why don't we write a person's name in their own in their notes? notes. Because that's why something, do we refer them as patients? That's something before I left my last inpatient job um, many moons ago now. Uh, that was something I was making a con because I was on a, a bit of a language warpath in that job. Mm. Uh, and that was something I was making a conscious effort to. And yeah, okay, so during the notes, I might have to write that person's name. Ten times. So be it. So mm-hmm. what? Like that's it. Yeah, it's it's something that I still don't understand, and I think I'll probably make a conscious effort to ask my colleagues, without trying to make them feel uncomfortable, threatened. Is why do we say patient? Patient said this. Patient did yeah. this. Patient agreed to this, or client agreed to this. Yeah. Or consumer said this. Yeah. Schumer agrees, and I'm thinking it's it's their notes. It's 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 often. Um, I remember reading a paper that was specifically looking at documentation, so writing from clinical notes from shift to shift, and this is in the community and the inpatient as well. And I think I remember it looked at. So it was looking at the power of language or the power of words. I think was the sort of topic, and it looked at whether when writing whether you use the first person or not so when you write it you'll say um author discussed this with joe blogs or they say i discussed this with joe blogs and said x y and z and there doesn't ever seem to there doesn't seem to be a consensus as to whether you actually write in your first person or second or third person i think from when i was doing it it was always I was always writing like, you know, author discussed with blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I think that was always just what, I think probably just because that's what all the other notes were written mm. like and that's why I did it. Um, I'd be inclined to say I still probably do the same as well. Is to say, sometimes I say I discuss this, but more often not, then I'll yeah. miss it out. But I think it's interesting because I don't know why, again, similar to the name, like I don't know why we're so averse to putting ownership that we wrote the notes because we have to sign the things Mm. anyway. So it's not like we're 
anonymous. Like if it was anonymous, mm. like, and I've written that way on things that are anonymous, like when we have to put in, you know, uh, like work incident reports and that kind of stuff. And a lot of those times, those things are written, you know, person A talk to person B, blah, blah, blah. Like they're written mm. in an anonymous way because sometimes there are accusations that need to be investigated, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. This is staff-wise, not client-wise. But for our case notes, like we sign, we name, date, sign. Mm. Like it's very it's obvious who wrote it. Document. Mm. The OT stuff back in the day it used to be an OT sticker on it. And I was the only one on the ward, so it's pretty obvious who wrote those ones. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not sure what the secret was now that you've pointed that out. <laughs> I wonder if part of it is is to do with like we mentioned before the red tape is like around the legalities of writing our notes is I wonder if people get overly or concerned or worried about the writing in the first person second per, third person knowing that it's a legal document yeah but I don't think it should I don't I and granted I'm not a lawyer I don't see mm. the difference from that point of view in whether you wrote I or whether you wrote author like mm. the connotation is Exactly the same that it was you. Yes. Like mm. the only way I could think that it might be different is if for whatever reason, and it's highly unorthodox and I'm fairly sure fairly illegal, is if you're writing notes for someone else. Yes. Mm. But that's the only time I can see like that might be a valid way of doing it. Mm. It seems. It seems very... Um... And I think it's something that goes across all professions is really do people write um, the person's name in their notes. And it's interesting because I think different professions will sometimes hold on to using um, specific terms, I think. Do you think there's been a difference? Because I know like a lot of, uh, there was a lot of shorthand, like mm. we were talking about before, like CT for client, PT for mm. patient, that kind of thing. There's a whole, there's a million different little shorthand code things mm. that people use in documentation. Yeah. Do you think the the shift from paper notes to digital has had an effect on that? Because in theory, like I know, for me anyway, I can type faster than I can write. So mm. I shouldn't need, like I should be able to, because that's one of the arguments I've heard against using you know, the person's name is because you have to mm. write it out and there's no shorthand and, you know, it's, mm. we've wasted so much time on documentation already, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But, like, I can type faster than I can write, so it shouldn't yeah. be any longer that I'm documenting mm. uh, and using, you know, the person's name, etc. Yeah. Do you th Have you seen a shift at all in any of this moving from paper to think... digital? Well, you, yeah, I think it's digital, probably... I guess, for starters? <laughs> Because I know not everywhere is. Listen, I probably not sure I'd go as far as saying that I'm digital. And probably, <laughs> um, I think some nurses are very motivated and interested in digital and gadgets and such, and some nurses probably not so much. And you're in the not um, so much camp. Um, I'd, I'd like to say I'm in between. You know, I can use an Excel spreadsheet. Um, I wouldn't go as far as I can use SPSS too well at the moment, nevertheless. <laughs> um. I think it's probably the two components. I think part of it is a time constraint issue is 
where I think, you know, you've got to 10 minutes before the end of your shift, you've got to write four of your clinical notes and you'd quite like to go home before you stay back. Yeah. So I think part of it is a time issue because um, I think obviously writing PT is quite quickly. Um, in saying that though, if somebody usually has a name that's got about 12 word letters in it, it's not uncommon that they've got a shortened version of the name. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if it's the, if we're writing our notes, what is it that we're writing about? Yeah. Like, are we writing more stuff that really could be considered fluff, which, you know, it's, she had eggs for breakfast this morning. Yeah. She had her tablets this morning. Well, we know she had her tablets because we could see it signed on the chat. So. Which is also in the same place that your note's going anyway. So, you know, we probably don't, one would argue, if you signed for tablets being given, then, you know, if the doctors want to know she had her tablets, we well, see it signed for, that would suggest it has been. But that's a, like in my experience in case conference and that sort of thing, if they want to know like that tablets are all given at the same time, that's where they're looking anyway. They're not looking through the notes. Hmm. They look through the notes for that sort of qualitative experience of what's been mm. happening on the ward and they'll look if they want to see medications or if they want to see like if they're on a certain feed chart, that kind of thing. Yeah. They'll look in the medication chart or they'll look in the, you know, the feed, the mm. food and water chart, food mm. and drink chart, whatever they call mm. it. Um, I think yeah. there's definitely, um, whilst it could be considered it's more time consuming, I think it's definitely worth thinking about the difference to including the person's name as opposed to an abbreviation I think and I've got to be honest I've probably seen probably more of our allied health staff members tend to use the full term rather than abbreviation yep um this is probably just in the area that I work in at the moment um but I think the other angle to it is is the fact that we have gone to more of a digital way of working so I think working more digitally digitally does have its benefits um the other thing is i think is we do have now so i know from my time so i have spent probably about nearly two and a half three years working in positions outside of mental health working in research and both positions went in mental health so i know from that time so in that while i think of as a hiatus the three years i didn't have it when i came back to mental health there was a noticeable increase in paperwork yeah I'd probably say even twofold. Yeah. Several things changed where I was like, well, we're going to have to get on top of this. Um, but because of that, there definitely is an increase in paperwork. So I think those time constraints would have something to do with it as well. So I say it's probably a combination of reasons. And probably my personal opinion would be I'm not sure those different ways would still justify using the words such as patient, client, consumer, I think it's still reasonable to say we can use a person's name. And that's like like you said before, you know? like, you know, if people have a super long name, often they have a short one. Even if they mm. don't, it's just respect. Mm. Like, if they don't, then you suck it up and you write their name. If it's that long, mm. copy and paste it. Yeah. Like, it's really not that huge. Like, it might save... I reckon over the course of writing all your documentation, you might save a minute, minute and a half mm. by yeah. shortening it. And yeah. you've not offended, but you mm. like the respect that you're giving that person by using mm. their name and, you know, oh my God, wasting a minute, a minute and a half. Mm. 
is exponential. Like uh, yeah. the the ri- not the risk reward, but the the payoff for doing mm. that is huge. But I think that really comes from though thinking critically about what does it mean when we don't use it. Yeah. And often yeah, what, I, I think what, it's what's... almost like separating that, like they're not a person. Mm. They're just a, a client. They're just a patient. I think it really has like a multitude of effects, you know, like you really, as you said before, you emphasize the person, you emphasize essentially what is the power of balance between the two of you. Yep. I think it really, it's, how do you say it? It's not de-identifying, but I think it's really minimizing the relationship on their pet. Yeah, Hmm. it's minimizing the relationship on the other person's part. Yep. And it's really quite impersonal. Yeah. Really. It's it's you I think you'd be very hard pushed to justify why that would be used. And I think on the few times that I have asked people, I think they've often said it's what we would that's how we refer to people at uni. So even then when you get the answer, it's like it's well, you can be taught at uni. So when I was at uni and studying, using the word consumer was the phrase to refer to people accessing mental health services which is fine and you know I understand that's part of the consumer movement and that's the terminology that they requested it's about it doesn't necessarily mean in the narratives that you're writing for the time you're with that person you need to refer to them as being that position yeah because more often a lot these people have got family they've got carers they're a son they're a daughter they're an aunt they're an uncle they're everything. They're more than this. Be careful, world. Zara. You're going to start sounding like an OT. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. I'll be your influence. You're, it's, you, it's... you're a self-appointed honorary OT anyway, so we're, we're okay. <laughs> or I'm going to add that to my CV then. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I think it's about recognising that this person's with you for a week or two weeks. Probably the most respectful thing that you can do is recognise the person that they are. You know, it's... And I think... And saying it takes too long, with the greatest respect, that doesn't really wash for me, I'm afraid. No, no, I agree with that. And I think if you, even with the like the consumer movement, like I think a lot of healthcare professionals, uh, I think, took those cues when that started, especially mm. seeing a lot of the uh, lived experience workers that are now employed in some health service have that in mm. their title. So there's, you know, consumer advocates and mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember some of the other titles, but similar. Peer support workers. Peer support workers, yeah. That's, well, yeah. peer support workers are a bit different, I think. Mm. Like that's a slightly different term. But I can guarantee that the majority of people, like there's a lot of people on a ward I don't think will have ever even heard of the consumer movement. There's a lot of mm. people that are new to the mental health system um, that may have never had any issues in their life that required the level of support that they get from an inpatient unit, that kind of thing. But I can mm. guarantee you, if you went up to them and said, "Would you prefer if I called you your name, or if I preferred if I called you a consumer?" Mm. Now I am hypothesizing here, but <laughs> I reckon ninety nine percent would say, "No, you can call me my name. That's mm. fine." But turn it around, though. Imagine if it's. If I saw you, would you like me prefer me to refer to you as an OT? I'd be like that OT, or do you prefer to say Brock? Sarah, that's how ninety percent of nurses refer to us anyway. <laughs> like that OT. Well, it's always like if if uh, if a person has gone and seen the nurse, like I need help with this. It's always mm. go and see the OT. It's never yeah. 
go and see Brock because yeah. I think it does serve a purpose in that, like I said before, like sometimes they don't know okay, yeah. who the hell's Brock. I don't know yeah. who Brock is. Mm. Whereas, like I said, there was the last ward I was on, there was only one OT. Mm. So, but it would I be think the thing kind of nice to like, this is Brock. Brock is the OT. Like some kind <laughs> of bridge that gap might have been a, a, a happy step. You need to remember, though, as well, this is nurses, um, and I've, I've probably done this at least more than once in my nursing lifetime, is more often not when we have student nurses with us, it's not uncommon to say the student nurse. Oh, yeah. I've seen that happen many it's, times. Um, that's, that's not uncommon, to, unfortunately. It's quite sad to say. So um, it goes um, outside of OTs, Brock, don't worry. I, I, I don't, it's definitely not just OTs. It's definitely not just nurses. I've seen it. All health professionals do it. Yeah. Professions do it. Um, mm. Even like the, the doctors, like they've got their little codes for their different levels. Mm. They've got RMOs and all sorts of stuff. And yeah, I can get most, pa- most patients. Here goes. Well, I've started now. Most people on the ward mm. know what an RMO was if it bid them. Mm. So I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Oh yeah, you're yeah. a junior doctor. Usually, is what the answer is. Oh, I'm a junior doctor, or I'm a doctor, yeah. doctor, in, a psychiatrist in training, or something like that. Like, yeah. Like. So yeah, yeah. I, it's. I feel like where with a lot of the language that's used on a ward, and I don't even think this is specifically in mental health too. Like this, I'm sure this happens mm. in in other wards. Mm. Um, you'd be able to speak to that better than I can because I've never worked in other wards other than mental health, but. I feel like a lot of the language is almost hanging on to tradition and hanging on to the way things mm. were as opposed to just starting fresh, which I think is like we were talking about when you worked in Fiji. Like they've got a health system that is very much guided by WHO guidelines and that sort of stuff. Mm. They don't have this historic stuff that they're trying to hang on to mm. as well as integrate all this newfangled health stuff into their system. Mm. They've got us, and like you said, it was really nice to work in. Mm. I think sometimes you can tell the service by being newer, though, by sometimes, like I think sometimes things are adopted through a workplace culture. Oh, yes. And I think sometimes, see, we're going down that. Oh, yes. (laughs) Going down that road. We've been down this road many, many times. Yes, we have. In our private chats. (laughs) (laughs) That we have. And I think that um, because when you made reference to other places, so I remember, so we often get people transferred from medical wards and it's not uncommon that nurses, general nurses, should we say, um, will refer to people and say, patient has passed urine, Um, you know, they've had the bowels open twice this shift, those kinds of things. I've read those notes, yep. So I think it's not, um something that we do just in mental health no so i think it's maybe what we're talking about is a much broader issue that goes outside of mental health and it goes as far as clinicians or health professionals in general where we actually say we purposefully de-identify the person if you like well i I wonder whether because that's one of the other things that i get asked a lot with students is uh or by students um is how you because, I mean, you know, when you're working with people in mental health, there are times that you hear a lot of really heavy shit. Like there's mm. some people that have just seen some things and gone through yeah. some things and mm-hmm. 
how the question I get asked is how you sort of don't let that get to you. And I wonder whether that depersonalization using the language is almost mm. like a long developed coping mechanism of sorts yeah. uh, to try and, I guess, reduce the amount of transfer there is to mm. the staff from the patients, from yeah. the clients, from the consumers, et cetera, et cetera, from Steve. Yeah. Um, of some of the things because like vicarious trauma and mental health mm. of like to the staff I feel is mm. huge like there are Massive. the burnout rate of mental health staff especially mm. inpatient mental health staff is mm. incredible yes like I mean, we've both been there mm. uh, it's huge but it's like what do you do about it because the job still needs to get done yeah and that's kind of the attitude at the moment. I don't think anyone really knows what to do about it because the job still needs to get done. Yeah. I think the um the I think the services are making I think the thing is the services have recognized this, which I think is probably one of the first and yeah. the biggest steps is yeah. I think for so long we worked there and probably ourselves. Um, we worked in areas where there was really poor support and the idea was that, you know, you just need to swallow a concrete pill and get on with it. Whereas now I think, thankfully, um, I think we're still getting there. I think we've come quite a long way, though, is people are recognising that, you know, it's okay if you want to cry at the end of your shift. People aren't going to think you're inferior because of that. Um, you're not going to be seen as a lesser person for that. Yeah. Um, so I think in one ways we've come steps ahead there. And the thing is, at the end of the day, is nobody that works well, in health services, full stop, but in mental health is a robot. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have a day where you're going to have a really curly day and you'll be like, I'm happy not to repeat that shift again. Um, and then you're going to go into work again. And the thing is, each day is an unknown. So you don't know who you're going to meet. You know, generally, sometimes you won't know who you're working with. So the whole box is pretty open. Yeah. So you kind of go into that with that knowledge and I think particularly for younger and junior staff that can be quite uncomfortable and sometimes I wonder if they feel that they're supposed to know this and they're supposed to be all over this already yeah um and perhaps this is probably something senior staff don't do enough is saying that you don't have to be okay at the end of every day yeah like you've got okay. some really curly days it's working through them knowing what supports are there to help you and making sure that you do access them and how you recognize that and sometimes recognizing it's the first part yep because more often than not you can know something but until you acknowledge it you're probably going to struggle for quite a while i think yep and the other thing is depending on the person is how you get that support and help is very much down to the person themselves really yeah 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 no, i agree with that and i think like one of the well, it's probably not so I don't think it's happening as much nowadays but sort of when I started working in mental health a lot of the wards they still had that attitude of like like you were talking about before like the swallow the concrete pill and just suck it up and mm. just get it done and I think mm. what was happening over time is the wards were essentially chewing up and spitting out really good stuff and only mm. the people that held that sort of really hard-assed concrete attitude were remaining so you end up with a ward yeah. full of stuff and it's not just nurses it's ot's psychs whoever you end up yeah. with a ward full of people with that mentality and that's yeah. not the best environment for 
you know, trying to care for people when they're really struggling and they need and they're very vulnerable. Support. Yeah, and they're vulnerable. And so, they've had some real curly experiences, you know, some experience that probably most of us are quite fortunate to not have had. Yeah. That you um, wish and on then they share people. that with you. So it's yeah. quite often the nurses that have become, I suppose, quite hard. Yeah. Nurses and other professionals as well yeah, have probably yeah. heard and seen their fair share of stories. They have their own things going on in their lives as well. I mean, they do 40-something hours a week, but, the, you know, they they have so many hours at home as well. Yep. And uh, and that's the thing. And then, But I think now that that's being recognised and I have read mm. papers and stuff about the burnout rate and mental health and that, like, so I know it's been, been looked at. Mm. I know it's been being talked about. And the hope being that if that attitude changes, then the culture of the ward, and you might keep some of those those younger, though not that's probably a bad thing, not necessarily younger, but some of the the like junior. a lot of the new grads, yeah, the junior, a lot of yeah. the new grads that would come out would be you know as all new grads are, and it doesn't matter what profession, mm. like they're fresh and they're happy, they're full of ideas and they want to change the yeah. world and all that sort of stuff, and you mm. want to keep some of that excitement. You don't mm. want the ward to beat it out of them until they move on, and then yeah. that's it. Like, mm. uh, and that's I, I've always, up until sort of recently, said for OTs like the a ward, an inpatient ward, if you're on your own, is not the place for a new grad. Mm. Uh, it just again because it will just chew you up and spit you out. Mm. Like I would recommend to most new grads to go somewhere else, but I think that that culture on a broader scale, not just on an individual ward, is mm. changing. So it might mm. now be not as bad a place, especially with the right supports, mm. for a new grad to go into because they might actually be able to make a change with all of that, you know, youthful mm. excitement and, mm. and you know, attitude that they come out with. But, you know, I think the thing is, though, when it comes to support for new grad OTs, for example, um, out of the risk of sounding like I've coming up with some PC stuff. <laughs> it is about, I think, being collaborative, but really about working. It's not just up to senior OTs to look after junior OTs. Like I really oh, think yeah, nursing yeah. staff, as a profession, on inpatient units now I make reference to, given that they're there for the 24 hours a day and they frequently know the people on the unit quite well, Yeah, really, um, that that I think they really, nurses have an onus as well to look after junior OTs and junior social workers and psychologists as well. It's, I think it's really about moving away from the them and us, I yeah. think. And um, I've worked on what I think we've both worked on wards where even within professions, there's a very them and us attitude. <laughs> <laughs> no more comments needed. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm talking about the language, though, but I think that's something, the language that we use, regardless of our profession, is it's important, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I think the power that's associated with it is um, it's important to people regardless of the profession. I can't think of the word that I'm trying to say. Not reference. It's relevant. Relevant. Relevant to all of the um, professions, you know, and... I was thinking back to when I was talking about medical nurses um, and probably ED nurses as well. This wasn't when, wasn't when I was in the um, working ED myself. I remember a senior nurse 
and she works somewhere else now she's in a different state even she said to me that um because we must have been talking about language I think and it's a few years ago as well now I remember she was saying we're talking about working in ED and she was saying that one of the concerns is as probably goes to a workplace culture is people who have taught the word behavioral yeah so that word is when you hear nurses that aren't in mental health and they'll say it's just behavioral yeah where does that come from i remember she said that it's probably likely that it's come from mental health nurses ourselves so we've actually taught yeah. people not even in mental health yep. potentially some of these words that yep. have no meaning whatsoever that we're misusing anyway and staff splitting those are probably Star. the two oh, words where I thought I'd wonder. She's still alive and well. <laughs> so I hear. Um, wow. But those are the, it's those words that I think we use. Yeah. And it probably goes back to the critical thinking of, well, what is it that we're trying to say? Yeah. And that's like, there's a lot. Of and even... I think actually for student nurses, sorry, student nurses no, and right. students in general, I think they struggle to understand what do they mean. Yeah. Or medication seeking. Yeah. Drug seeking. There what we go. That that's all. Yeah. 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 I think there's a lot of, like, even outside of um, your documentation, like we've spoken about mm. a fair bit, like the just the general conversations and how you present what you do, like when you go home as well, yeah. has a can have a big impact. Um, mm. I see one of my pet peeves, I have a lot of pet peeves, but one of them is... <laughs> With regards to words, is the word suffering? Because I'm like, yes. you know, oh, such and such is suffering with bipolar. I'm like, well, they're not really suffering. They look pretty happy to me. And if yeah. you ask them, they're like, do they oh, feel not... like the suffering? Well, like, I, oh, I've spoken oh. to people. They're like, oh, it's not suffering. It's just a mild inconvenience, pretty much. It's you know, mm. I got to take this medication, and if I take the medication, I stay well. All all is kosher. But mm. um, I think there's so much assumption with regards yeah. to mental health specifically. Uh, mm. and I, I'm, under, I'm not saying that no one suffers in mental health. I, mm. They do. Um, but it's not up for us to say whether or not that's happening. That's what I was going to say. I think using the word suffering, I think really you have to be very brave to be saying somebody's suffering. because, And the reason that I say that is because as far as I'm concerned, if somebody's describes their suffering that's on the person themselves to yeah. identify that that has got with the greatest respect i don't think that's got anything we don't have any role in identifying if someone's suffering or not because that is if you identify someone's suffering i think that's a very subjective position for the person themselves yeah in their experience yeah. And that's, I that's think a severe end of it too. So like if someone's if someone's described to you that I'm suffering, like that's not something you're just like, oh, they're suffering. Like that's something yeah. it's like, oh my God, I have to do something about yeah. this. This is severe end of the spectrum kind of thing. Yeah. So it's not just a – I think quite often it's used as a throwaway and it's one of those descriptors that – probably needs a little bit more attention if it's genuinely happening and not being yeah. used by a staff member as a throwaway. Yeah. I can remember looking after probably several people who 
they've been given a diagnosis of bipolar affected so they've been in hospital um and they've been probably in the high end so probably hypermanic would be the word you'd use if you wanted to yeah and i can probably tell you several times those people have said to me that it is some of the best feeling that you can get. And sometimes they've been most productive. Yep. So I think Stephen Fry, for example, I think he died bipolar, I think. Yeah. And I think he may have said something similar as well. Sometimes you can have your most productive and do some of your best work when you're in that phase. And I'm not sure that they would say that they feel like they're suffering when they're in that position. No, no, and that's like in that sort of manic, hypermanic phase. I've heard many people describe that as like I've had many people talk about because uh, a lot of the treatment, the medical model treatment for bipolar mm. is to try and the ideal is to bring those people down because they have these extreme highs and these extreme lows and they want to bring these mm. people down to that middle ground. Um, mm. And the medication kind of just, yeah, dampens all of that down to try and keep them in that middle ground. Mm. Um, but I've had so many people that I've worked with who have a diagnosis of bipolar that have said, like, if you could make a medication that would just keep me even just slightly above, like, mm. that would be a dream because mm. it's like at the extreme end, it's euphoric. Yeah. Like, it's exceptional. It's amazing. It's productive. It's, mm. you know, and. From an outsider's point of view, you see people, they're not sleeping, they're, you know, speaking really fast, they're doing everything, they can't sit still. But for them, and like for someone with a creative outlet, I've heard as well, like Stephen Fry, and there's a few other people that I've heard of that are sort of, you know, content creators, comedians, mm. that kind of thing. Mm. It's really productive. And that's where yeah. quite often I've, I've heard that they do do their best work or their, their most work, their most productive work. Mm. is in that sort of hypermanic phase. Yeah. So, you know, and then this is a whole nother podcast, <laughs> but are we in Same an ethical area? Well, yeah. are we in an ethical gray area of this is where that person wants to be and we're trying to bring yeah. them down here because, mm. you know, what right do we have to deny someone from feeling super happy mm. and productive? That'll be part two of this podcast. Part two <laughs> of Zara. And I think Brock's the thing I was going to say. Rants. Hey. Part two of Zara and Brock's mental health rants. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. I thought you want to keep your audience. <laughs> this, this is for me. This is cathartic. <laughs> I think um, the thing that when I was talking about the words that when people say drug-seeking behaviour and behavioural. Those are things that I think you sometimes sometimes you see them written, but they're more probably things that you see more done verbally. Handover, yeah. And it's and staff splitting as well. So I remember working with um, a very good nurse, and I think this was in my younger years. I mean, it was a few years ago now, and um, I think somebody said that um, somebody on the unit was staff splitting. Yep. And I remember. The seniors, and it still reminds it lives with me to this day. Said to me that there's no such thing as staff splitting; it's staff not communicating effectively with each other. I like that. I was like, okay, yeah, I can go. Yeah, that's that's pretty spot on. It's so I think with the whole three terms, really, that my personal opinion is that I think they've got quite a negative connotation to it. 
So if we're saying that somebody's drug-seeking, they're behavioural um, and they're staff-splitting, to start with, I don't really know what behavioural means, if we put it in little comments. Isn't everything behavioural? <laughs> I think, well, how do you feel like she's being very behavioural? Yeah. Do, do you mean because she's asked you for something or because she's come to you four times in 15 minutes or because she's hurt herself on the ward or yeah. because he's gone to somebody else and he's not gone to you. It's, I really, I, I really struggle with the word. And I think it's what the senior nurse said to me that, you know, we taught nurses in general nursing to use this word. Yep. To me, that was quite an alarm bell. And I think it's probably quite true because I can't think where that understanding would come from otherwise. Totally open to ideas on that one. Um, but I can't really, even to this day, I can't fathom out what it means. Yeah, and I think that's like that's not something we ever got taught. That's something I learned on the ward probably from yes, nurses. Yes, yes. So I think that this one might be This isn't stuff that you specific... get taught on uni. This is stuff that's more, yeah, I think, that's done passed verbally. down from generations. <laughs> Fortunately. Um, I think occasionally you see those words written in notes. I think people yeah. are um, a bit more cluey now that they don't, they're not overly positive terms to use. So they'll be quite happy to say, it, I think, verbally. Yeah. And again, I wonder if that comes down to a bit of litigation and a legal document and writing in people's notes. Um, and verbally, we're sort of quite happy to, put it, to sort of say it. Um, I really do wonder is, I think one of the best explanations I sort of heard, and I often say it is, so when we say behavioural, is it be behavioural, whatever that means, or is it they've got an unmet need? Yeah. Thanks, dog. You can mute this bit out. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the postman. Or oh, is it? <laughs> Could be anyone. It'd be someone walking past or the postman. Where is he barking? Hey! Shut up. What a twat. <laughs> Rusty. He's quite funny. There he is. Now he's at the window. Hey, shush. Settle. Settle, that's another one too. <laughs> he's like, you can't see through the window. It's like reflective. Aww. So I can see him like, he knows where the sound's coming from. He's like looking at the glass, like trying to see through it, but <laughs> he can't work it out. Oh. Now he's yawning. He'll be fine. Um, yeah, with the staff splitting one has always intrigued me because I'm like. Yeah. You know, if a kid, mum says no and they go and ask dad, we don't call it parent splitting. No. But for some yeah. reason, when it's an adult that does it, we see it as this. And and, and we kind of expect that behavior from kids. Like, that's a, like, oh, that's normal. Like, that's what mm. kids do. We don't grow out of that. No. It's a behavior that we've all done. I guarantee no mm. matter how prim and proper you think you are, you've done it when you were a kid. You did that. Oh, yeah. It, it's, you know, if you go to Dan and you're like, Dad, can I have a chocolate bar? And he says no. Yeah. You're like, oh, maybe I'll ask Mum then. Yeah. Well, she won't looking. be home till later, so I'll go out and shop and I'll call her and ask her and she'll say yes then. And that's the other thing is, like, once kids learn which parent's more likely to give them what they want, they'll go mm. to that parent first. Mm. So, I mean, that's a that's a natural behaviour. I, I think a lot of the time hum, uh, humans... 
a lot of the time health professionals underestimate uh, I guess how humans are wired when it comes to meeting their needs like depending on the need like if it's a survival need like and you can use Maslow's when you look at this if it's a survival need they will fight and kill to make sure that their needs are met have you ever seen someone that feels like their you know their oxygen's been cut off like if they're get stuck in a shirt while they're underwater or something and they can't get it mm. off. Like, they're thrashing and they are fighting and they will do anything to make sure that... Because that, you know, air's important. It's a survival need. Yeah. Whereas, you know, and it... it the Obviously, the reaction sort of eases as you go up that and the, the actual need decreases as you go up mm. the Maslow's. But it's still there. People will still put in effort to make sure that their needs are met. And we talk mm. about... We see a lot of... Um, again, we see it in kids probably the most obvious, but, uh, say kids, if, if a kid learns or a a toddler learns that when they cry, they get this or they get X, Y, Z, or they blah, 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 they're going to keep doing it because Mm. that's what they've learned works. Like, Mm. especially before they learn language very well. They learn how to manipulate their environment to get what they want. That's what humans do. That's how we've evolved. Mm. So learning how to manipulate your environment to fill whatever need it is, Mm. it's not something that's like malicious in a lot of cases. Obviously, there might be sometimes. Mm. But in a lot of cases, it's not malicious. It's it's a learnt thing. It's something that... You know, human beings have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. Mm. Yet, for some reason, now that just even the connotation of that, uh, the labeling of it as staff splitting, mm. is like they're out to get us. It's it yeah. straight away puts that us and them back in there. And I find oh, a lot massively. of this outdated language is about mm. that us and them. It takes yeah. away that that equality of power that we're we're aiming for that we want. In a, yeah. in a health service. It really does, I think, draw attention to the difference. Like it really focuses in on the, well, you're on that side of the door and I'm this side of the door. Like it really, I think it doesn't pay homage to the experiences that these people have had. I mean, if this person is doing what you've called is staff splitting, mm then I think it's really not thinking and like, it's a bit like an onion peel. It's not peeling back to the layers of the onion to find out well what's in the middle of the onion to have, you know, got to this point. Yeah. And then probably on the other angle of it is, is if you said, I'm going to get your paracetamol in 10 minutes, I'm just doing something. And then they go to somebody else that's just come out of the nurse station and said, can you get me paracetamol? And they get it for you then. And then that's then called staff splitting. That's a very whimsical um, example. Yeah. I'm thinking, well, is that staff splitting or does a tooth really hurt and mm. she knows that she doesn't get it then when she goes to bed in half an hour, it's then going to take her even longer to get to bed because it'll take longer to work. Yeah. Like I think I really wonder if we, when we throw this word around, is it really... Personally, I don't really think the phrase exists in general. No. I really think fondly of when the nurse said it's actually staff not communicating that well. Yep. Um, 
and I think if you're very clear and open with people and just say I'm just doing something at the moment but I'll be with you in 10 minutes or I can ask if somebody's free and if not I'll be doing it for you as soon as possible yeah more often than not I won't say always people are generally quite amenable to that as a general rule yeah. you know I think there's going to be an exception it's I think it's quite interesting that we and I think it goes again for all professionals. I think nurses do tend to do it. Um, I think it goes for all professionals as well as we actually use it as quite a throwaway term and we use it quite quickly and yeah. quite easy without really contemplating what's being asked. Yep. And what's maybe what's being asked, but then also I think remembering the experience that this person's had. So we know they had a really curly upbringing. They don't get along with their family, the parents, for example, and X, Y, and Z and stuff. Yeah. Sort of paying homage to that. And I think the idea that um, with all those things taken into consideration, this is how they get their needs met. Yeah. Or even they're making a simple request. Or maybe they're a bit impatient. I think we're all a bit impatient sometimes. There's only so much that I think that we can do. And as I said, I think if you explain things quite clearly, more often than not, it can be minimised. Yeah, I think... I think an alternative is is for some people... So I've worked with some people before, whereas at the beginning of the shift, they they could come up to you with various demands several times through every hour for the whole eight hours you're working with a person. And I've often found if you set... From the beginning of your shift, if you say... Um, I'm looking after a couple of other people as well this afternoon. I'm going to try to do things as quickly as possible. Um, if I can't, though, I'll try and do it as soon as I can. Yeah. Um, always try to come to me, though, because other nurses are looking after other people. Yeah. More often than not, that's mostly worked. I won't say always, because a person knows that you're listening to them, that like you're recognising they given, may have several you've given needs them the or whatever context. they are. You know, it's... Yeah. But I think they also like the continuity of just working with one person. I don't yeah. think people more often not want to go to five other people to get one thing yeah, yeah. done for them as they want, you know? Yep. So I think it's really looking at what that phrase means yeah, yeah. Um, is quite an interesting topic. And I always, it's always funny when I hear nursing stuff, other people say, I always feel like I could just see this great big question mark on top of my head. Like people are wondering, well, hang by what's you know <laughs> so i'm thinking on terms of how people can might be able to sort of improve their language and i'm wondering whether or not you think even just because I, I can i i've heard not just i can foresee but i've heard people say like it's it's too big an issue like i can't there's nothing mm. i can do everyone does it it's like it's not me it's nothing's going to change Mm. Um, and I've always been of the opinion that, like, if you change your own and you stick with it, it doesn't matter what other people are doing. The culture shifts; it does. And I, like, like mm. I said at the start, like, there's a lot of the re a lot of the language that I used to use when I first started that I was using just because that's what I was reading in the notes. Mm -hmm. So when people start seeing, yeah, well, when mm. people start seeing your notes and reading your notes and you're using the person's name or you're not using some of these terms that we've discussed already, mm. that will have a flow on effect. It'll impact those people whether they realise it or not. Sometimes they won't realise mm. it and they might just start doing it themselves, which then whoever the third person is that's reading these mm. notes is now seeing two people using the person's name and it has that sort of flow on effect. 
Is yeah. there anything else you think people might be able to do or should be looking at or should do, etc., that they can start, I guess, improving, I guess, the language that they're using when they're working with people? I think it's really... So you'll know this from me already. I'm a really go-back-to-basics kind of person. Yeah. So I'm not really Unless a firm it's believer. Hey. Unless it's picking an outfit. There's less sequins these days, although <laughs> there is a few there still. Um, I'm still a firm believer in really going back to basics and making it uncomplicated. Yep. A lot of things in mental health, I think we've made them far more complicated than what they need to. I think we can make things quite common sense. I wouldn't do this for a family member of mine. Therefore, I'm probably not going to do it to you as well. Makes sense. I wouldn't be happy if somebody did this to me. So I think it's fair. I'm not going to do it to you as well. Like, I'm quite a common sense, lateral thinker. At least I've been told anyway. <laughs> so I think probably what I would suggest is thinking carefully before we're doing our writing. What is it that you want to say? Yeah. Really focusing on the objective. What have you seen? And when I say that, I don't mean you stand on the unit and just sort of stare and watch people the whole time. Because <laughs> these are going to be very small things that you can objectively see. Yeah. And then versus, I think, really sitting down and having a snapshot conversation, what's the subjective? So what's the person telling you? Because sometimes they could be two very different things. Um, I think using quotes are really effective as well. Yep. When they're used in context, not taking them out of context. I think using quotes in context, I think, can be really useful. Um, and I think, again, as we've said already, I think using the name, I think, is perfectly okay. I don't see any reason that we can't use the name, I think. Um, but probably the biggest thing I would say would be probably be focusing on when we're writing our notes, so this is probably advice for the written now. We'd probably be thinking it's a narrative for the eight hours you've had and worked with this person. Yep. So not seeing it as, um, I think, a medical report. Yeah, yeah. It's not a medical report. It's not getting submitted to anybody. It's it's not, you know, numerous people are going to read it. Yep. Um, but it's a narrative of the eight hours you've had conversations together. You've had experiences together. You've had moods together. I mean, you know, however you want to phrase it, that's, yeah. I think, really... Behaviours. The important <laughs> behaviours as well. Um, and in talking about behaviours, I'm probably really unpacking some of the words that we do use. So if you're going to say someone's behavioural, yeah. with your commas... What does that mean? What is it we're saying? Yeah. You know, we'll be saying... They were unhappy sleeping in bed, therefore they decided they wanted to sleep in the lounge and they then were unhappy sleeping in the lounge, so then they decided to sleep on the kitchen bench. Like, do we call that behavioural? Or yeah. they couldn't find someone comfortable to sleep? I think I think being very wary, yeah. pretty similar to your like use your your simple language, like being very conscious and being very wary. Anytime you're gonna shorten something or summarize it using a word, being <laughs> sure that one for the, probably the most important, you know what the hell that word means because I've seen yeah. it so many times that people will write yeah. something. I'm like, that doesn't yeah. mean what you think it means. Yeah. Um, but also that someone else reading it, if they didn't have a good understanding of what that word is, especially if it's a, a complex word or mm. an out of context word like behavioral, um, yes. 
that they can still, even if you read it back, that you could still get that picture of what mm. actually happened. And if they can't, you can't summarize it. You're yeah. going to have to lay out what happened and what was what you mm. observed and what was said and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to say that nine times out of ten, that's probably what you're going to have to do. So you yeah. might just have to suck it up and get used to it. Yeah. Because you know, this is important. It's how the the dialogue and the syntax that we use when we're talking about clients does have a flow-on effect on how we treat, or well, not just us, but how all the staff as mm. a as a sort of if we look at everyone's notes as a, a global average has a flow on effect on how we treat people and how we yes. view people. So mm. it's not a throwaway. It's not just a legal thing. It's super important, and that's why we wanted to have this this chat today mm. to try and highlight like it needs to be given the importance that mm. it's it deserves, and it's quite often just seen as an inconvenience and a waste of time and that kind of thing. But it's it's not. Mm. It can have a really profound effect on the people that we work with. Mm. And I think the other thing is, is going back to probably some of the medically, the medical jargon that is often used. I think if we feel compelled to use that is then I think it's then really important to back it up with something objective. Yeah. So if we want to say Joe Bloggs has been listening to auditory hallucinations today, then you can then say this was observed by. Yeah. Who was walking as talking to himself. Yep. Myself personally, I'll probably write that um, Joe Bloggs was observed talking to himself, but there was nobody else around him. Yep. That would be my common sense lateral way of writing it. I guess Some what? people that's probably shorter. write auditory hallucinations, and that's okay. Yeah. But I think if you're going to use that to stick with a medical jargon, we really need to back it up with something objective. Yep. Because rather than saying a throwaway statement because it's shorter and we're saying four words. Yeah. Well, how do you know that? Did somebody tell you? Yep. Did he tell you? Or did, you know, because we- I can't tell you how many times somebody's been told that they um, were hearing voices where in actual fact there was somebody else in the corner of the room that they just didn't see. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've, I've seen that happen before. Or they had an earpiece in the, in the ear and they're like, he's talking to himself and I'm like, actually, he's got an earpiece. Or in, singing. But... Yeah. 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 So, Don't yeah, those are, uh, <laughs> <laughs> those would probably be some yeah. of the things. The key takeaways. That's it. Awesome. Thank you so much. I almost Thank you much. called you a name that I'm not allowed to call you on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Zara. Thank you very for, much, Brock. Thank you for inviting me. And having a chin wag and yeah. always good to catch up. And, always. Uh, we will have to do this again soon we've got yes. a thousand other topics that we could branch off from this one by the sounds of it so yes i think we'll we have do. to have a think and uh <laughs> attack some of those ones okay and congratulations on being my first nurse thank Occupy. you very much i feel very privileged honorary ot and nurse zara mills <laughs>